Brothers and sisters, I welcome you to Community Bible Church again. Pastor Oliver Jones, please turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6, we'll look at verse 10 and following. As we do, I want to start out with a quote from John Calvin who said, Satan, who is a wonderful contriver of delusions, is constantly laying snares to entrap ignorant and heedless persons. Which is to say, humanity loves to live in the land of make-believe, dreams, the land of imagination, the land of anti-reality. Do you know of what I speak? Friends, we are currently in our country right now celebrating Pride Month. This is the height of hubris, absurdity, and arrogance. To make up a false reality and to project it onto other people, even demanding their approval of your lie. What is the lie? What is the dream in LGBTQIA+. The lie is that you can do anything that you want with your sexuality as if you were not created by God in his image for his glory, having been made male and female for the purpose of heterosexual unions to the glory of God. We are now a nation that celebrates LGBTQ plus Pride Month each year during the month of June to honor the 1969 Stonewall Riots in New York City, which were a tipping point for the gay liberation movement in the United States. President Joe Biden is a huge advocate for these lies bound up in the LGBTQ plus rebellion against God, saying last year at this time, pride is a time to recall the trials of the LGBTQ plus community that, have, that they have endured and to rejoice in the triumphs of trailblazing individuals who have bravely fought and continue to fight for full equality. This is insanity. It is fantasy land. It is imagination. Yet it is the brave new world in which we live. Perhaps someone would ask Americans, do you even believe in God anymore? Actually, the polling organization Gallup has been asking that question of Americans since 1944. How have Americans responded to the question, do you believe in God? Well, from 1953 to 1967, they report that 98% of Americans told Gallup, yes, I do believe in God. By 2011, 11 years ago, that number had dropped to 92% of Americans who say they believe in God. In that 44-year period, 6% of America had changed. No longer were the kids and the grandkids holding on to the faith of their grandparents at a rate of about 1% every year for the last, or for, for, the, for seven years. How far has the percentage fallen in the last 11 years? How many Americans believe in God today? Well, according to a new Gallup poll conducted on May 2nd of this year, 81% of Americans identify themselves as believers in God, which means that the trend for the last 11 years is a loss of 1% per year for 11 years straight. Add to this trend the fact that God means a whole bunch of things to a whole bunch of different people. And I actually use the pronoun him. That's if he refers to himself by that pronoun anymore. We live in a society that loves relativism. A society believes truth is relative. The gender is relative. That the word woman is relative. That God himself is relative. Again, I tell you what John Calvin said. He said, Satan, who is a wonderful contriver of delusions, is constantly laying snares to entrap ignorant and heedless persons. I'm guessing that you're in this building today because you're not heedless and that you don't want to be ignorant. Perhaps you're visiting us this morning and you've been caught in some of Satan's snares in his lies for far too long. Perhaps you've never heard the sound of truth coming out of your religious leader's mouth. Perhaps you're starving for faith that is confident, certain, secure, not in a man, but in the promises of God. Friend, if this is you, I'll tell you, you've come to the right place today. We at Community Bible Church stand on the authority of the word of God from the very first verse, which alone is all the truth that we need for lives that live to godliness, to, to the glory of God even. We just need to have the word of God read to us, explained to us, and the Holy Spirit who lives in each and every one of us, he will do the strengthening and will establish us on truth, truth that is spiritual, truth that is eternal, truth that is hope-filled for our hearts and for our minds to contend with the sick, twisted age in which we live. Let's put the word of God before us now, casting all the cares of the craziness and imagination-driven 
system of this world behind us that we might embrace truth. Here at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, where Paul says, finally, finally, go with me for a second. Finally, what? Finally, after teaching you what to believe in chapters 1 through 3 and how to behave in chapters 4, 5, and 6. After teaching you about your calling in Christ and the conduct expected of you, Christian, after teaching you about the riches of redemption and the responsibilities of the redeemed, especially the responsibilities that every Christian has in the church for the pursuit of love and unity, diversity, purity, sanctification, that we might be building up ourselves together through the power of the Spirit into a spiritual temple for God. Finally, after all of that, Paul says, know this, you, Christian, are engaged in spiritual warfare, and God alone is your strength. He has provided spiritual armor for you to put on. So put it on and stand firm, therefore. This is what the text says. Stand firm against Satan. Read the text with me from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, where Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all taking up the shield of faith with, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. John Calvin said, All whom the Lord has chosen and received into the society of the saints ought to prepare themselves for a life that is hard, difficult, laborious, and full of countless griefs. Billy Graham once said, Jesus invited us not to a picnic, but to a pilgrimage, not to a frolic, but to a fight. And for a hockey player, that means a lot. J. Gresham Machem said, It is impossible to be a true soldier of Jesus Christ and not fight. Christian, do you see the fight? Do you see the spiritual warfare that rages all around the landscape in which you live? Are you engaged in this spiritual fight righteously? The enemy of your soul would love to have you not come to church. He would love to have you not come to this church. The enemy of your soul would have you believe that LGBTQ is no big deal. Satan wants you to believe that you, your silence on these issues is, that's, a, that's right silence, that's good silence, that's just silence. You're doing good, you're loving people by just being silent. That's a lie. Satan wants you to sell, he wants to sell you a lie, just like he has sold this lie and so many others to people at every level of our government, city, government, state, national governments. And the lies that Satan is selling, I hope that you understand, these are the lies that will cost you your country. They might cost you your home. This last week, they already cost you your 401k. And the reason why is because the gullible and deceived are in the majority. And the silent remain the minority. Why are the silent, why are the minority silent? Where still are the lies of Satan that he tells you personally? When you're sick or suffering a long-term illness, he tells you that God is powerless to stop it. Or he tells you that God doesn't love you and, doesn't, and, and that God actually delights in your pain. He tells you that when you're surfing the internet, that you can handle immodesty. Or he tells you to delight yourself longer in images and imagination and fantasy land thoughts. He tempts you. He tells you when you're angry. He tells you like any good psychiatrist does these days, just scream, shout, let it all out. It's okay to lose self-control when 
You've been annoyed or offended or interrupted in life. And when you're sad, Satan tells you this. He says, drink coffee. It'll be okay. It's just fine. Go ahead and do that. It won't result like the study that I saw this last week in more spending. Shall Christians drink Satan's coffee to defeat sadness? No. (laughs) Is that your best path to spiritual victory? Shall Christians distrust God's power and goodness because of our suffering? Shall Christians engage in lusts and dreams and fantasy land imaginations? Shall Christians lose all self-control at the slightest offense against us? No, no, no. God provided spiritual victory for all of us over Satan's lies. Where do we find spiritual victory? Where do we find spiritual warfare victory? What must we do to defeat Satan and be made strong in the Lord to his glory and our good? We see the answer in chapter 6, verse 14, where Paul says, Stand firm, therefore. To stand is to offer resistance or to hold one's ground. To fight with resilience to keep critical territory that has already been won in your spiritual life. Brothers and sisters, we are on a spiritual journey through a hostile land. The world hates us. And as we advance, we are not to retreat. We are called to stand firm. Clint Arnold says, stand firm functions as the heading of the remainder of the passage. He says, the repetition of this verb, stand firm, strongly emphasizes the goal of our struggle. Paul's desire for all believers is that we resist Satan and his demons and thereby prove the power of the living God who lives inside of us. This is not an imaginary fantasy land battle. The battle that we're engaged in, spiritual warfare, is the height of all realities. We're Christians. We're called to resist, to stand firm, to be strong in the Lord, to prove the power of Christ to the glory of God. God's glory and our victory are all found when we put on the armor that God has so graciously supplied for us. Paul has introduced the armor of God twice already in this passage. And now Paul is compelled to explain in greater detail the full armor of God, which he has commanded believers to put on in chapter 6, verse 11, to take up in chapter 6, verse 13, so that we might stand firm in chapter 6, verse 14. And so we see here in the text that Paul explains six spiritual armor expectations, which are required to stand firm against Satan's schemes. It's here in the text that Paul amplifies six assets of God's armor which demand our action and demonstrate our spiritual warfare success. So what six assets of God's armor demand our action and demand our spiritual, or demonstrate, I should say, our spiritual warfare success? Two of them we looked at last week, the first two. Number one, the belt of truth in verse 14. Number two, the breastplate of righteousness, also in verse 14. The third asset of God's armor is number three in verse 15, the shoes of the gospel of peace. Number four is the shield of faith from verse 16. Number five is the helmet of salvation from verse 17. And number six is the sword of the spirit, also in verse 17. These six assets of God's armor are required for spiritual warfare success. They've been provided for you by a gracious and loving God. In our last message, we discussed numbers one and two. Today, we will tackle only numbers three and four, the shoes of the gospel of peace, number three, And the shield of faith, number four, verses 15 and 16 in your text. Next week, we'll finish the armor of God with verse verse 17, looking at the fifth and sixth assets of God's armor, the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. So for today, let's focus our time then on the shoes of the gospel of peace, number three, and the shield of faith. Friends, has God supplied us with spiritual armor for no reason? How important, how significant is it to take up and put on the spiritual armor that the text says God has supplied? Do you have a better supplier of spiritual armor? Or are you so spiritually gifted that this armor would be restricted for you and you can just leave it off? Brothers and sisters, you don't get to go into Costco without showing them your Costco ID. You don't get to travel on an airplane without taking off your belt and shoes to go through security. And you don't get to bring God glory in this life 
and enjoy victory over Satan in all the temptations that he cast at you and live your Christian life to the glory of God in all of its goodness, apart from tightening the belt of truth around your loins, apart from covering your chest with the life of righteousness. And as we see third on our list of six assets of God's armor, securing your stance in shoes made out of the gospel of peace. So let's consider now then the third of six assets of God's armor, number three in your notes, as it were, the shoes of the gospel of peace from verse 15. The third of six assets of God's armor, number three, the shoes of the gospel of peace. As Paul equips us with spiritual warfare, let's read in chapter 6, verse 15 again, where he says, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Concerning shoes, I have a riddle for you. Recently, Angela and I left to go on a trip to California. I took three pairs of shoes, dress shoes for the conference, running shoes for the shorts that I was able to wear because the sun shines in California. It's down that way. And of course, I took flip-flops for the beach and for the hotel room. I'm a military guy. I know how to take care of my feet and the reasons why. Ask anyone who's ever done any kind of camping with me. Foot care is a major consideration. And so I took three options. However, when Angela and I got home, I will tell you, I bought no shoes. I was wearing one pair of the three, and yet I unloaded six pairs from my bag. Now, who among us can solve this riddle? One look into any of your homes, whether in the closet or by the door in the garage, will tell me that all of you know how to protect your feet based on the activity that you're engaged in. The question for us here is why? In spiritual warfare, shall your feet be made from the gospel of peace? Why make your shoes from the gospel of peace? Why is this a good material from which to make your shoes? James Montgomery Boyce says, the most awkward phrase in this list of Christians' armor is this one about the feet. Perhaps you're thinking the same way. Perhaps your mind is stuck on the irony of the passage. He's got images of soldiers geared for warfare and shoes made out of peace. Harold Honer says, it is somewhat paradoxical that the gospel of peace is the preparation for warfare against the hosts of evil. And maybe you're asking yourself, how do military shoes and the gospel of peace go together? Well, let me give you the answer in a single word. They go together in the word stability. Stability. Paul's focus here in spiritual battle is your stability. What brings you stability? I'll let you know that brothers in Christ disagree on this point that I just shared with you. Stability. Earl Radmaker summarizes the two prevailing views of this difficult description of spiritual armor by saying, quote, This may mean either that the gospel is the firm foundation on which Christians are to stand, which is the stability argument, or that the Christian soldier should be ready to go out to defend and spread the gospel, which is the evangelism view. Is Paul thinking in the text stability or evangelism? That's what's at issue. Bible scholars that lean on the side of evangelism, they make a good case saying that Paul immediately asks for prayer for opening his mouth to evangelize in chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. They say that Paul is leaning on Isaiah's words and imagery, which we would know from Isaiah 52, 7, where Isaiah said, quote, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. This text was certainly known to Paul because he quoted it in Romans chapter 10, verse 15, which we read earlier. And as James Montgomery Boyce says regarding this evangelism position, Christians already know the gospel. So the idea here is to share it with others. Now, this is a good list, and the intent of the men who think that evangelism is Paul's focus is good. I appreciate their intent. The gospel needs to go out. We need to share the gospel with a dying world. But what major, major issue coming right out of the immediate context stands in the way of this reasoning, this understanding, this interpretation of evangelism? What single word stands above all others in this text demanding that we understand gospel shoes are meant for stability and not evangelism? What main verb is being supported by the proper military-style feet covering Paul describes in the text? What single word? Someone say it. 614, stand. 
stand. We are being commanded to stand, to stand and resist Satan, not to advance the gospel. Turning your Bibles to Acts chapter 12, verse 8, Acts 12, 8. John MacArthur says, Paul's subject is not evangelizing the lost, but fighting the devil. In this passage, the gospel of peace, he says, refers to the good news that believers are at peace with God. Stand in that, is the idea. Stand firm in that, that you have peace with God through the gospel. Harold Honer agrees, saying, It is the believer's sure-footedness in the tranquility of the mind and security of the heart in the gospel of peace that gives them readiness to stand against the devil and his angelic host. The participle there in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 15, translated having shod, is the verb hupodeo, which means to put on shoes, to shod. Harold Honer says, the verb always means to bind or fasten under, especially with reference to the feet, because ancient sandals were bound on with straps. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus paired off the disciples and sent them out to evangelize the towns on the way to Jerusalem. Mark records in Mark 6.8 that Jesus instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals, hupodeo. You're in Acts chapter 12, verse 8, where Peter thinks that he is in some kind of land of make-believe. He finds himself in some kind of fantasy land. He believes he is dreaming when, after being arrested for preaching the gospel in chapter 12, verse 6, read the text with me. On the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and the guards in front of him of the door were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter's side and woke him up saying, Get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself and put on your sandals. Hupodeo ta sandalia. Sound familiar? And he said, and he, and he did so, Peter did. And Peter said to him, or the angel said to Peter, I should say, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow. And he did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. Imagine that. <clears throat> the apostle Peter is woke. No, no, no. The apostle Peter is not woke. He's not woke. Don't be woke. Peter was rudely awakened by an angel. He is getting an angel escort out of prison. And yet before leaving, for the purpose of sure-footedness and stability, he is told by the angel to hupodeo his sandalia. Turn back in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 15. 615. It's in 615 that we are not being transported out of a jail by an angel. Neither are we running a 200-meter sprint against 13-time women's world champion Allison Felix, nor are we digging in at home plate with a bat over our shoulder or trying to hit a home run off of Felix Hernandez or Randy Johnson. Paul's imagery in our text seeks for our strength and stability by equating our understanding of the gospel of peace to the shoes in which we stand for spiritual warfare against Satan. That's the parallel. He wants our feet covered, ready, prepared. This is the same kind of preparation that we see in John 14, verses 2 and 3. I would hope that you know this text very well. When Jesus is telling his disciples on the night of glory in chapter 14, verse 2 of John, he says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Brothers and sisters, you understand that Christ right now is in heaven preparing what John calls in Revelation 21, verse 8, the bride, the wife of the Lamb, the holy city, Jerusalem, a place where there's lots of rooms, which will come down out of heaven at the consummation of the millennial kingdom and the beginning of the eternal state. Just as Christ is preparing a place for you in the holy city, Jerusalem, which he calls the bride, so now you are to prepare your feet with the gospel of peace for your own stability in this life, in your Christian walk. Josephus, a first century Roman and Jewish historian and a military leader himself, says Roman soldiers wore shoes thickly studded 
with sharp nails. William Blakey says, the Roman sandal was furnished with nails that gripped the ground firmly, even when it was sloping or slippery. These sandals are defensive and worn for stability, nails sticking out of the bottom of them. They are your responsibility to put on your feet, and they are never to come off. Which brings us to a final consideration. Why are military-grade sandals equated with the gospel of peace? How is the gospel of peace our source of great stability? In what way does the gospel of peace anchor us and provide peace and stability in spiritual warfare? The gospel secures our peace with God. That's what it does. That's how it does. The gospel secures our peace with God. You need to have that as the stability of your whole form and frame, your whole person. Turning your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. I was saved at age 21, and I'll never forget getting up in the days after, throwing my newspaper out in Spokane here for three weeks consecutively that tears were streaming down my face at the thought of this reconciliation and peace with God. I recited to myself over and over again, I had peace with God. I would say this to myself over and over again. Jesus is the Son of God. He humbled himself, came to earth, and took on flesh. He was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life and died a sinner's death on the cross. And on that cross, he took upon himself the wrath of God against the sins committed by all those who would ever believe. And then Jesus cried out, It is finished. The debt has been paid. He was buried in the tomb of a rich man, according to Scripture. And for three days, after three days, just as he promised, he rose from that grave. He was seen by over 500 witnesses before he ascended into heaven, where he is seated at the right hand of the Father, where he makes intercessory prayer for me every day. This is my God. This is the gospel. I'm a sinner. Jesus paid for sins, and I tell you now, Jesus paid for my sins. Did he pay for yours? This is the God with whom I have peace. The truths of the gospel are incredibly stabilizing for our lives because they declare peace with God. You're in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, where Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, who is Peter, then to the twelve, and after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born son, he appeared to me also. These are eyewitnesses' accounts of the life and ministry of the Son of God. You see, brothers and sisters, what you read in the text of Scripture, what you're holding in your hand, what you are holding in your hand, those words are objective truth. That is reality in the Bible. It's factual. It is not fictitious. The people that don't want anything to do with the Bible, they are dealing in the land of make-believe. They are dealing in the land of fictitiousness. It is of supreme importance for spiritual warfare that you know that in your hand right now in the Word of God, you are holding on to objective truth. So much so that Paul equates the gospel of peace with God to the shoes that must anchor our feet in battle with Satan. I would ask you, do you believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Does it anchor you? Does it stabilize your life like a pair of cleats into the turf? How well do you know this gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you have peace with God? No, I most certainly hope that you do. If you don't, before you leave today, I would love the opportunity to talk with you. I would not want you leaving here without certainty knowing that Jesus is a Savior and that you must repent. If not, I will be one who, like Paul, begs you on behalf of Christ, even now in your heart of hearts, to be reconciled to God. You must understand, God made Jesus, who knew no sin at all, to become sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. If 
Ephesians 2.14 is where we're told that Jesus is our peace. And in chapter 2, verse 17, we're told that he came, Jesus did, and preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Does it get more Trinitarian than that? This is good news worth believing. This is good news worth setting your whole life to. This is the gospel in which you can place all of your hope, all of your trust, all of your faith, which brings us to the fourth of six assets of God's armor. The fourth of six assets of God's armor. The second point in your note today, but I'm calling it number four because it's the fourth one on our list. As we go through the armor of God, number four of six assets of God's armor is the shield of faith. The shield of faith. We turn to verse 16. And we will discuss now point number four in your notes, the shield of faith. Turn in your Bibles to Proverbs 18. Proverbs 18. John Patton was a missionary to the New Hebrides island of Tana in 1858. His wife died of pneumonia and malaria not long after they got there, along with his three-month-old son who died three weeks after his mom. He and a fellow missionary were attacked by natives, and three weeks later, his missionary friend died. While many others would have left for fear immediately, John's faith kept him on the island of Tana for three more years. Through the deaths of eight missionaries and a dozen native teachers, until the Lord made it abundantly clear that at this moment it was best for John to leave the island of Tana in the New Hebrides. The night of his departure is interesting. Natives surrounded his home and the homes of other missionaries and set fire to the buildings and the fences. John was convinced that to save the lives of him and those who were gathered in his house, that he needed to extinguish the fire that was traveling down the fence line. And so by faith, he exited the house and the security of the locked door and rushed to the fence to put out the fire and take it down and was immediately surrounded by natives who began chanting, kill him, kill him. At that moment, they all heard the rushing and roaring of exceedingly strong winds from the south, joined with thunder and lightning. The Lord sent a cyclone to the island, and the winds drove the flames away from the house, even extinguishing the flames. A torrent of rain fell out of the sky, soaking the smoldering fires and sending the natives back into their own homes. The natives were quoted to have said, This is Jehovah's rain. Their God truly is fighting for them. John Patton is a man who placed his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because he found that the Lord is a shield just like David found that the Lord is a shield for him. You're in, uh-oh, I told you Proverbs, and I really would like you to turn over to Psalm 18. You're in Psalm 18 now, aren't you? Perfect. Where David tells us the Lord is his shield, saying in Psalm 18, verse 1, I love you, O Lord, my strength. Did I say it right? Which one's right? All of a sudden, I'm confused in my notes. Is it Proverbs? You like Psalms. Thank you. Uh, now I'm going to quote it. I'll read it right now. Here we go. A Psalm of David, Psalm 18. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Turn your Bibles to Genesis 15. Genesis 15. What I want to show you is that time and time again in the Bible, men of God declare that the Lord is a shield for his people. The wisdom of Agur in Proverbs 30, verse 5, where Agur says this, he follows the same line of reasoning. He says, every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Before David could take his throne, he had to contend with King Saul, who was trying to kill him. And the Lord delivered David, causing David to burst into song, saying in 2 Samuel 22, verse 2, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. David continues in 2 Samuel 22, verse 31, singing with boldness and confidence, As for God, his way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. 
David says in Psalm 28, verse 7, The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him, and I am helped. Therefore, my heart exults, and with my song I shall thank him. Consider how Moses comforts and encourages the Israelites on the plains of Moab before his death, saying in Deuteronomy 33, 29, Blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, who is the shield of your help and the sword of your majesty, so your enemies will cringe before you, and you will tread upon their high places. Now, this is the testimony of men in the Old Testament, that the Lord is our shield. The Lord is our shield, our great defender, our protector. Who caused men in the Old Testament to think this way, that the Lord is a shield? You're in Genesis 15, verse 1, where Moses records, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear. Abram, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Will you turn back in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16, where we run into our challenge for this morning? I just took the time to show you that the Old Testament declares that God is our shield. We went to Genesis 15 and I showed you that God himself says, I am a shield to you. And so the challenge in our text this morning goes like this. What is your best shield, people? Who is your best shield to defend you from all of your enemies? What shield offers you the best protection against Satan and his demons? From the overwhelming testimony of the Old Testament, God alone is our shield. So why then, in our list of assets provided by God as spiritual armor against Satan, are we told that we, human beings, must take up ourselves the shield of faith. Why is the verb directed at us repeatedly, continually, that we're to be doing this action of taking up? And what is the faith that Paul has in view here? Is he talking about the objective faith that Jude 3 says was once for all delivered to the saints? Is he talking about the content of faith? Or is it Paul here speaking about our faith subjectively, what we believe personally, trusting and meditating on day and night? You're in Ephesians 6, verse 16, where Paul says, In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Let's talk about faith for a second. I remember being seven years old and standing at the top of the Big Dipper, which is one of four really fun slides at Splashdown Water Park off I-90 in the valley. You know them, they're the blue ones. I was scared out of my mind. I did not know what lied at the bottom of that blue slide. I asked my dad, who was standing right there, Dad, how deep is the water at the bottom? And he looked across the freeway, and there's a blue water tower over there, and he says, son, it's as deep as that tower right there. And he thought that would give me assurance and increase my faith. And all I could think was, that much water, I'll surely drown. And so I went back over to the little kid's pool, because I didn't have the faith to slide down the Big Dipper or the Funnel Tunnel with the men. This is a text that we're looking at today that might make you feel like you'll die if the shield that protects you, which is so big and so important, it's commanded by Paul, that it's something that you do, that you bring to the table. It's something that you're responsible for. Heaven forbid. Run away. Be scared. And yet, brothers and sisters, that is exactly what Paul is saying here. You are responsible for a considerable aspect of your spiritual defense. You must take up the shield of faith. Let me ask you this. Who knows the answer to this question? Where is In-N-Out Burger located? No, you're wrong. It's at the corner of Hot and Fresh. Everywhere you go, In-N-Out is located at the corner of Hot and Fresh. It's at that intersection. You here in the text are at the intersection of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. That's where you're at. And I would tell you at this intersection, don't get scared now. Don't get scared. Take up comes from the Greek verb analombano, which means to take up, to lift up, to bring up. It shows up 13 times in the New Testament, mostly in the book of Acts, especially in Acts chapter 1, where Luke records three times that Jesus was taken up into heaven. 
Paul uses this verb twice in this passage. As he previously commanded believers to, verse 13a, take up the full armor of God. The verb is active. It expects continual participation from us to take up and use the shield of faith. The imagery of the shield is important for us to comprehend as well. As we've discussed, Paul was familiar with Roman soldiers even from his youth and is now chained to one as he writes. It is not a surprise that Paul makes then the parallel between physical preparation of a Roman soldier with spiritual warfare preparation for every Christian. Roman soldiers had two shield options, the lightweight round shield and the heavy rectangular door-shaped shield. Roman historian Polybius captures a fuller picture of of this larger rectangular shield that Paul most likely is considering in Romans, or sorry, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, saying, Polybius does, quote, the Roman panoply, the Roman armor, consists first of a shield, the convex surface of which measures two and a half feet in width and four feet in length, the thickness at the rim being a palm's breadth. It is made of two planks glued together, the outer surface being then covered first with canvas and then with calf skin. Its upper and lower rims are strengthened by an iron edging, which protects it from descending blows and from injury when rested on the ground. It has also an iron boss fixed to it, which turns aside the most formidable blows from stones and pikes and heavy missiles in general. Clint Arnold says, the function of the calfskin on the front of the shield was to prevent the incendiary arrows, the lighted ones, from igniting the shield and burning it up. Colin Brown adds, before battle, the shield was immersed in water, soaking the leather cover and the canvas beneath the leather, which also aided in extinguishing the flaming missiles. Turning your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. And while you do, I want you to consider the following thought with me. We're talking about Roman soldiers. Think about Roman soldiers. Roman soldiers were selected for service. It's not the case that any Roman citizen could just decide someday that they wanted to serve and go grab a shield and a spear and a helmet and fight for Rome. No one could just exercise their own free will and participate as a Roman soldier. Rome's selection of their soldiers mattered more, that Rome's free will mattered more than the soldier's free will. And once soldiers were selected to serve Rome, they were given the gear required and needed for battle. While at the same time, they personally, each soldier was made responsible for the care of the gear that they were given. Brothers and sisters, do not miss this point in the imagery that's being presented to you. God drafted you onto his army. He drafted you. He selected you. He chose you. He predetermined from eternity past that you would participate with him for spiritual warfare against Satan. Hold on to that thought all of the days of your life. Do not lose that thought. You were selected for elite service and warfare against Satan on purpose by God. And I want you to do this. Look around the room. Look around the room. Look at your brothers and sisters. Who among us was chosen because they are so spiritually, naturally gifted by God as spiritual warriors. Which one of you? Raise your hand. Tell us. None of you. God selected each and every one of us, the weak ones, the pitiful ones, the despised ones, the rejected ones. He chose us that through such weakness he would prove his power. That's why he did that. That's why you're sitting here. That through our personal weakness that he would be exalted. His power working in and through us by the power of his Holy Spirit. How is God's power seen to us in all that he has supplied and given to us? Right down to faith. Right down to faith. To the faith required to believe and trust in him. He gave you that. You're in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. You know, this is such an incredible doctrine to understand 
teaching to understand. It was a first century issue for Paul, which is why Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 exists. It's this whole Calvinism, Arminianism debate. It's right here. You want to see Calvinism, Arminianism debated? Paul does it in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. He contended with the same issue in the first century. It's right here. Paul tells you how little you've done and the full extent of what God has done in your salvation, saying to you unequivocally, in the negative, after already presenting the positive, let me make sure you understand the negative, saying to you in Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. That right there, that. Faith, saved, grace, all of that. That is not of you. It is the gift of God. It is not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. You see, you have to understand for spiritual warfare that you are a custom-crafted spiritual soldier, hand-crafted by God, down to the very faith that he placed in you. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews 11, verse 1. And we'll continue a discussion on faith. Friends, faith, as you just read, is the free gift of God. It comes as a gift. It's given by God to you because without it, you would never believe. Which of you would believe if he didn't give you the faith to believe? None of you. Faith in God is a free gift. You did not earn it, and you certainly did not do it. But you're doing it now because it was given to you. You might be able to place your faith in the chair in which you sit. You might be able to place your faith in the roof underneath which we sit and stand. And you might even have faith that your wife can balance her coffee while taking notes at church. But that type of faith will fail you. Brother, you might well find yourself sitting in a pool of coffee before this message ends. Pastor John MacArthur says, every person lives by some form of faith. Examples would include masks, vaccines, water, the bridges that you drive over, the food that you eat from the grocery store that you don't know where that food came from, planes, trains, automobiles, Ships, buses, you put yourself on these things and you trust, you have faith. However, faith in God was lost for all humanity in Adam and Eve. They chose rebellion and lost the privilege of knowing God for all of us. We are all born rebels to God and he alone must give us the faith to believe in him. And maybe a better way to say this is men won't believe in God. They won't do that. Men will not believe... They'll, they'll believe that they can jump 10 feet in the air before they believe that they can't believe in God. They think that they have the ability to do that. They don't. They actively reject God. They love believing in their own ability to think and reason. Oliver Wendell Holmes says, it is faith in something that makes life worth living. And that's true. Men love to have faith in themselves and to exalt themselves. However, John MacArthur would quickly qualify such a statement by saying, faith is only as reliable and helpful as the trustworthiness of its object. 14 million Southern Baptists have placed their faith in their 177-year-old denomination, which was founded in 1845. Sadly, last week, many might have seen the futility in their misplaced faith in the Southern Baptist Convention, who, the Southern Baptist Convention, that is, put together a credentials committee to examine the word pastor. Specifically, they tasked this committee with determining if pastor means men alone or men and women. You see, after 177 years, they don't have faith and confidence in their former understandings that they really understood what the word pastor means. You're in Hebrews 11, verse 1, where the author to the Hebrews defines faith as confidence, certainty. And as he says here in the faith in chapter 11 verse 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, 
so that what is seen was not made out of the things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts. And through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. Verse 5, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Here in this text, faith is defined and faith is demanded. Men are only ever pleasing to God by faith. Men will only ever know eternal life and the Lord's rewards and his blessings by faith. Which is to say, not only is faith a free gift of God, it is also a gift meant to be put to use. Just like Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, David, Samuel, and all the prophets. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. We have such an incredibly great cloud of witnesses who were given this faith by God and lived in this faith. They lived this faith moment by moment, day by day, trial by trial, through the joys and the sorrows that this life brings. And for this reason, the author of the Hebrews says in chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, even the faith that is set before us. Fixing our eyes, that is, on Jesus. Fixing our faith on Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Not only is Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ is the object of our faith. Turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. Let's see it there. He's the object of our faith. Our faith in him has grown from the moment of our salvation. Not one of us in this room has a poorer image of Christ now than from the time that any one of us was saved. And brother or sister, if you do have a poorer image of Jesus now than from when you were saved, shame on you. Your faith is not working. You could be one of the soils that was weak soil, that was light soil, that did not allow for depth of root. You have a fake and phony faith if your image of Christ has grown weaker over the course of this time that you've claimed salvation. And I beg you to repent. We know Jesus' blood redeemed us. We know his blood, his sacrificial death on the cross, propitiated the wrath of God. I want to ask, raise your hand if you know the word propitiation. You should know what propitiation means. That Christ satisfied the wrath of God against your sin. We know our sins are imputed to him. And furthermore, we know that his righteousness is imputed to us. Jesus is the object of our faith because he died and rose again and secured eternal life for us by making us righteous in God's sight. How are we righteous in God's sight? Though we are full of sin, Paul tells us in Romans 1.17, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written. But the righteous man shall live by faith. You're in Philippians 3, verse 8. Let's have Paul tell us there. He says to the Philippians in chapter 3, verse 8, more than that, he says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Do you know Christ? Would you say that right now you are found in Christ? Would you say that? Does all your righteousness come from Christ? Or are you even now working to pay God for your sins? Is your attendance here today some kind of offering to God for your sins? Do you know the power of his resurrection? Will you receive yourself the very same resurrection? Will you receive that one that Christ got? Turn back in your Bibles to Ephesians 6, 16. Friends, 
this last round of questions that I just fired at you. When you can answer to those questions, yes, 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 and amen, at that moment, you have successfully taken up the shield of faith. Faith is defined by God. It is given by God and accepted by God as righteousness. Faith is the only way to be pleasing to God and is required for eternal life. For Christians, our faith in Jesus is our delight and it is our shield for all of us to withstand the flaming arrows of the evil one. It is God's free gift to us and it is our responsibility. And it's amazing. What a joy. How amazing is this? The God who says that he will be our shield has given us faith and fully expects us to defeat Satan in our obedient use of the shield of our faith. Our faith in Christ helps us to fight off Satan's temptations. Where Adam and Eve failed because they didn't have the power of the Holy Spirit and were led by Satan to doubt God, we, like Christ, have the Holy Spirit and will defeat all of Satan's temptations, just like Jesus did when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness for 40 days in Matthew chapter 4. John MacArthur says, The spiritual flaming missiles against which believers need protection would seem primarily to be temptations. Listen, Christian, temptations. Pastor John says, Satan continually bombards God's children with temptations to immorality, hatred, anger, envy, lust, covetousness, doubt, fear, despair, distrust, and every other sin imaginable. Every temptation sent to you by Satan, directly or indirectly, is the temptation to doubt and distrust the God who saved you. And yet, in the power and plan of God's salvation, our faith defeats every temptation Satan will ever throw at us. Glory. Glory. Hallelujah. What an amazing salvation. What an amazing faith that we've been given. If only we would always take up our shield of faith. John Calvin says the darts of Satan are not only sharp and penetrating, but what makes them more destructive is that they are fiery, Faith will be found capable not only of blunting their edge, but of quenching their heat. Turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John 5 to close our time. Brothers and sisters, you are responsible to cover your feet in the gospel of peace. You are responsible to take up the shield of faith. After all, you are God's called, elect, adopted, redeemed, saved, children of light, children of God. These expectations are right and good and just that your behavior would match the righteousness of God and that even these weapons of spiritual warfare for which you're responsible will be the ones God uses to save your life. By the way, if you ever fall asleep in the spiritual battle, if you ever fall asleep, do you think the enemy will come and take you away? Is it a possibility that the enemy will ever come and take you away? No. Because you didn't manufacture the salvation that you have. No, that's the thing about our God, is that even if you fall asleep at the wheel, even if you fall asleep in battle, somehow, some way, if that's you, he's the one that will hold you together. Now, if he does, don't be surprised if he grabs you and shakes you around, <laughs> makes you wake up. The object of our faith is the Prince of Peace in whose gospel we place all of our trust. His salvation demands our obedience. His grace compels our love. His victory declares our joy. John Patton returned to the New Hebrides Island and continued his ministry there for four decades. By faith, this man served the Lord there deep into his 70s, even traveling 44,000 miles at age 76 by ship to speak and preach 820 messages in a year in order to raise 13,000 British pounds for the work to continue in the New Hebrides Islands. And when he left the island the last time, there were 24 missionaries and their wives ministering on that island, on the series of islands, who took up their shield of faith, having shod their feet in the preparation of the gospel of peace, which John Patton mentored for them, showed them how to live in. Friends, we have been born again to a living hope. 
We are the adopted children of God. And I leave you with the words of the Apostle John from 1 John 5, verse 4. Look at it with me. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Father in heaven, we delight in the faith that you have given. Give us faith, Father, to stand against the enemy and his flaming arrows this day. Lord, we close our time in song. We want to lift our voices to you because of the amazing salvation that you have applied onto us. Help us, Lord, to fight this spiritual warfare with honor, with dignity, with courage. Help us to stand firm as your ambassadors, as your warriors. Let us fight for you, for your glory, and for our good, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.